If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Was violence endemic in the British Empire, or was it the result of a few bad apples straying from the civilizing mission? In her new book, Legacy of Violence, Professor Caroline Elkins of Harvard University argues that it was very much the former. She explains how liberal imperialism was able to coexist with regular acts of brutality across Britain's colonial domains. Caroline explores these ideas in conversation with Rob Attar. Caroline, in your book, you view the British Empire through the lens of violence. And is it fair to say that you see violence as being absolutely integral to British imperialism? Um, Yes, I do, Robert. And I think the when one when I think about violence in the British Empire, what I'm interested in is not just demonstrating the ways in which it's endemic. It's not a series of one offs um, explaining violent episodes by perhaps a bad apple or perhaps an extreme situation in a particular colony but rather showing how it's a thread that runs through the narrative. This book covers almost 200 years. And running through the narrative such that violence is always part of the equation, and I should add, so too is reform. 
And I think one of the conundrums that we can we find with the British Empire and many empires, but we're talking particularly about the British here, and that is that coercion and reform end up being two sides of the same coin, this notion of the civilizing mission. And I think it's in that sense that Legacy of Violence is really looking to help the reader understand how this happens, why it happens, and how we can make sense in some ways of the present based upon some of these, uh, these patterns that we see in the past. And actually, I was, I was going to ask you about that, the, that idea of the civilizing mission. I mean, how, how did British imperialists square that with all the violence that was being conducted as part of this project? Yeah, I, that's a really fantastic question because, you know, at the time in the 19th century, when towering figures, John Stuart Mill and others were debating and, and we had violent episodes, right? We had 1857 in in uh, India, we had the Morampe Rebellion in Jamaica, and this notion, this developmentalist notion about taking liberalism to brown and black subjects, colonial subjects around the empire was already vexing, right? This idea that it was going to take centuries. At some point, they would be like us, right? In this kind of civilizing mission, this white man's burden. But what was interesting is in the aftermath, particularly of Jamaica and the Morant Bay Rebellion, figures like John Stuart Mill couldn't contain this dualism, that reform and coercion were two sides of the same coin. And one of the things that I demonstrate in the book that, that I found uh, as an historian quite interesting is that Humanists could. So people like Robert Louis Stevenson, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, one can be both at the same time. And this idea of liberal imperialism, which is in and of itself an oxymoron, um, was very, very difficult for those in the 19th century and even going forward to contain in a single frame. And that's something that, uh, and it takes me about 800 pages to do it, that I'm really trying to help the reader see through example by showing and not telling how this plays out and how one can be, how things can be both at once. And and it's a, it's a difficult concept even for a writer to, to get one's mind around. And so I think one of my goals as the writer is to help the reader through this and to see how this this plays out over the course of time. Now, in your first answer, you mentioned or alluded to this argument that was sometimes put forward that there was a few bad apples. These events were not central to the empire. There were rogue actors taking, you know, taking actions beyond their brief. Do you think that the British imperialists and the British authorities genuinely believed that argument or were they themselves aware that that wasn't true? You know, that's the $64,000 question, right? What did, what, what, you know, in American lingo, <laughs> um, what... What do people believe at the time, right? And again, it's something that I spend a lot of time sort of peeling off kind of layer after layer for the reader to have a sense that by and large, those at the top, those making decisions, those sitting in Whitehall, those in Downing Street, they knew. They knew that these were not one-offs or bad apples, and in fact, there was this constant working and reworking of how does one conceive of this developmentalism, this liberal imperialism, this civilizing mission in a way that um, shields the public from the coercive nature of it or downplays that aspect of it or justifies that aspect of it while holding up the element of reform. And I think that's a crucial point. And in some ways, it's really, it's up to the reader to decide. Who knew what? What did knowing mean? I provide lots of information. And one of the goals of the book is to invite 
a wider conversation about how and why this is happening. And, and your question really sort of really pinpoints one of the key questions around this. So you said that there's perhaps some disagreement about whether these people knew the extent of the violence. Were there times where the violence was actually being centrally directed? Were there instructions from London or was this generally happening on the ground? Unquestionably, it was coming from London directly. Um, and certainly, so that's the headline, right, to your question. And it was coming directly from London, not just from the political right, when the Tories were in power, Churchill and others who they, they who readers might associate with sort of being the standard bearers of empire, but also from labor. When we think about the post-war Attlee labor regime, they're right in the thick of it in Malaya in particular, right? Ernest Bevan, the foreign secretary. There's an overall understanding and policy and acceptance of the use of violence at a state level, right? And this book is very much about state-directed violence. At the same time, each colony sort of floated its own boat, right? They developed some of their own uh, local policies. They developed some of their own um, certainly local techniques. However, what the book also demonstrates is that while the, each colony may have had its own separate local administration, some of these historical actors who were carrying out the orders, who were carrying out the policies, who were, were moving between one colony to the next. So in some ways, as I describe in the book, it's like a spider's web, right? All these different connections. And only by stepping back and taking in its totality can the reader truly understand the ways in which not just orders were coming from the top, not just the ways in which um, there were directions coming from individual colonies, but how these were all connected between each other. And I think that's one of the things I'm hoping readers will take away from this book. And when you're talking about imperial violence, what kind of forms did this take? Is it mainly military campaigns? Are we talking about um, harsh punishments for criminality and things like that? Or is it something different? You know, it's, it's, it's a whole range of things. Um, you know, we have, you know, very high level, Massive uh, policies of forced uh, relocations, some of the largest forced relocation policies in, the, in history, after the, with the exception of the um, trade and enslaved peoples, first happens in Malaya and then happens in Kenya. The construction of what are called emergency villages, the forced relocation in barbed wire villages of, of, of Chinese in Malaya and then Kikuyu in Kenya and elsewhere. These were, of course, drawing on policies that had been long in existence in the British Empire. And readers and listeners may be familiar with uh, what was taking place in the South African or the Boer War, which really set precedent, then was carried on to India. So these don't just come out of nowhere, right? They're all connected historically. And then we have policies, if we go from the very big picture, right, how do you take massive amounts of populations and sort of relocate them, contain them? And then the question becomes, how do you punish them, right? And that punishment is often framed within a liberalizing notion of reform. In Kenya, it was called rehabilitation, right? Earlier on, it was called the moral effect of violence, what is it about coercion that can take, if you will, sort of childlike creatures, and I use sort of the scare quotes and around that as, as they were often described at the time, how do you take those childlike creatures and, and force their development, right? Force them beyond this kind of supposed criminality. And you do that through all sorts of, you know, whether it's forced labor policy, whether it's legal uh, punishment of 12 strokes with a cane, and of course, all of this the legality of it is is central to the book because the, the the British government 
um, renders legal many actions that had previously been illegal, right? That would have re- that would have invited prosecution. Then, of course, the book does not shy away from the nature of how punishments play out on the ground. If you center state-directed violence as a main focus of of a book, then statistics are not enough. Describing the lived experiences, what it felt like to be tortured, what it looked like, how it felt and what those were thinking who perpetrated some of these acts. And so in that sense, readers should be prepared and at the same time, in many ways, to understand the ways in which the empire impacted not just those who were considered the colonized, but also those in the military, those in the colonial service. There are certainly some who bragged about this, others who are deeply, deeply affected by it. And it really changed the course of their lives. And I think the readers, and I can certainly say for my own self, felt deeply um, empathic to many of the historical actors um, that I, that I uh, excavate and, and present their lived experiences within the book. Did the extent of the violence depend, was it racialized? Did it depend on the kinds of people that were being encountered by the British imperialists? I mean, for example, were the white dominions treated differently in this regard to places in India and Africa? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think let's sort of step back and think about how did race play out in sort of the civilizing mission? What happened in the 19th century when liberalism, right, this notion that um, the spread of the rule of law, the participation in free market economy, all these things that were being extended in greater and greater ways in in Britain itself in the 19th century with the Reform Acts, right? Um what happens when those notions are taken to distant shores, right? And when brown and black populations don't look like us, and suddenly skin color becomes, if you will, one of the markers of, of difference, and certainly one that, that brands, if you will, um, the ways in which coercion can be deployed to develop, to, to lift up, to, to, to execute the white man's burden. Now, I want to make an important point on this, and the book's quite clear on it, which is, you asked the question, it was an important one, how you framed it, racialized, right? So race can be skin color, as we all know, but racializing the Irish or the Afrikaners, let's use those two examples, who are white populations, However, they were not British. They were not seen as being civilized in the same way that Britons were. And so, therefore, the same kinds of policies that we see being executed in India and Kenya and Malaya are similarly being executed in Ireland and South Africa. And I would also point out, as the book does, those two locations, South Africa and Ireland, are absolutely instrumental to our story. So what it tells you are the ways in which liberalism, again, it can rework and work itself such that explaining how it is that you can torture Irish, you can detain women and children in South Africa, have them die at alarming rates, and justify this through the language of reform and the civilizing mission. How effective, um, by its own terms, was this violence? Did it serve to keep the colonized populations under control, or or did it just beget more violence? 
it's again another very good question. It's um the book the book really traces this and the degree to which the degree to which we see reprisals and counter reprisals, like a spiral playing out. Violence begets more violence. And at the end of the day, we can look <laughs> in a very different kind of way. I want to be careful about not not making uh, too close of analogy, but if if listeners are thinking about the ways in which Ukrainians today are digging in and protecting their home front, what they're willing to do to do that. Imagine, if you will, 50, 60, 70 years ago. You have an empire, a colonizer that has come in, that is deploying massive violence, and you are seeking your freedom, your independence from this rule, your ability to live and operate in ways that are no longer under the British thumb. And of course, these things play out in interesting and very complicated ways, because to be thinking about just sort of the colonizer and the colonized, right? Counter-reprisals, reprisals. The lines of divide become very blurry at different points. And that's something else I invite the reader to, to experience with me as the writer, right? To be seeing the ways in which local populations will switch sides and allegiances just to survive. Things become so bad, right? Different points at which those who are, if we take for an example, any, any of them, the IRA, the, uh, the Mau Mau movement, the, the Chinese in, in Malaya, could be as draconian and violent against their own populations when they, when they, when they suspected or thought that somebody was being disloyal and, and fighting on the British side, if you will. Um, and so in that sense, these become incredibly violent, sometimes confusing um, wars that have no end. And I think that's the other thing. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, eventually they do end. But this notion that these will be, which happens over and again, these are three months, a uh, three-month war. <laughs> we'll be, it'll be over very quickly. Just does not play out. Now, and as you've mentioned, this violence received a lot of opposition from the colonized people. But were there also people within Britain who were opposed and trying to prevent this violence taking place? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the idea that um, everybody just fell in line back in Britain, right, would be erroneous, uh, you know, for, for sure. And I think as an historian, there are several things. One, you, you see um, the backlash that many of those who, who, who protested, who went out to empire to find evidence, right? Who, you know, we can go back to Amritsar and, and Montague, who at the time, who was the, 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 the Indian secretary, and the, the heaps of abuse that he withstood. And of course, ends up dying at, at quite a young age. We go later on, if we fast forward to Barbara Castle in Kenya and Malaya. But then we have many others. Uh, you know, we have, you know, those who are anti-war, who are pacifists. Um, we can kind of go on and on in terms of collections of individuals. And I think in that sense, um, it's both an indication that, um, you know, this idea that there was something, you know, sort of British about um, executing this kind of violence is a very sweeping statement to make, considering the number of individuals who were outspoken at the time. And to be frank, given the level of cover-ups that were happening, it's quite extraordinary, the work that they did. 
And today, as an historian, some of the work that they did is absolutely crucial. You'll find it in the footnotes of this book. Um, absolutely crucial to, 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 to piecing the story back together again. And also absolutely crucial for Britons in the present day, you know, to be thinking and considering about how and why it was that they were protesting. What was it that had them so upset? And I think in that sense, also, the, the, the book definitely takes us not just in the empire, but it moves us back and forth, right? Where at one moment, the reader is going to be in Kenya, and then suddenly they're going to be back in London to see how this is playing out, why it's playing out in certain ways, and then taking us back out to empire, say, for example, in Malaya or somewhere else. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so I think it's important to, to remember that all empires are violent. The, the threat of violence is always there. Does it happen every day in every place and every second? No. Um, and the question becomes, what I'm quite interested in is looking at when violence erupts. Right. And when violence erupts and when it's state directed violence. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. You said there was nothing particularly British about this kind of imperial violence. So does that mean that the other European empires behave similarly or were there things that were worse about the British Empire? Let me step back and answer your question sort of full stop insofar as all empires are violent, right? Full stop. The question becomes, what's the nature of that violence and why is it playing out the way that it is? What I'm making uh, an argument in this book about is that there is something, you know, the notion of liberal imperialism, which is very much of a 19th century idea. And what I say is that, and I make the argument that this notion of liberal imperialism, which is a sort of a broad umbrella for the civilizing mission, right, where it can contain um, those on the far right and the far left 
and it can contain, it can even contain some of those protesting against the violence. It's not as though many of them disagreed with the principle of the civilizing mission, which is it was Britain's burden to uplift those less fortunate, those less developed, if you will, throughout the empire. But just believing that coercion shouldn't be used, right? But remember, what makes the British Empire different, perhaps, than, say, and, and I'm very clear in this, for those at the time, parts of the empire may have looked and, and felt like sort of Nazi Germany, but they're different. This is not a totalitarian state in the same way because, it, you know, there, there's no end date to the Nazi empire, right? It's supposed to go on in, in perpetuity. At some point, the British empire is to be declared a success. At some point, it could be a generation away or two centuries away, but at some point, the notion was that the, the colonized populations would develop, that the civilizing mission would take hold, right? And that's what makes it different. The French are not dissimilar in some ways, in, in so far as, but, but of course, the French think about sort of creating 100 million Frenchmen around the world. The, the British are not up to that. And, it, you know, and I, and I do raise this question in, in the book itself, which is, you know, at the end of the day, this developmentalism, that, that's sort of the, the crux of, of, of what I would invite readers to think about. This developmentalism and, you know, at what point does that yet come, Right. Often we'll hear they're, you know, they're, they're coming along, but just not yet. Now, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that not yet never comes. Even, even when independence comes along and we think about whether or not brown and, and, and black and, and, and others from the former empire could ever be British. And I think that's a question one has to ask oneself when one is thinking about the ways in which empire is playing out in the present day. And that's fundamentally different than the French, right? There's an idea that, that, that they are creating 100 million Frenchmen around the world. And so we see some tension there. And, you know, once again, Rob, I, I do, there are no easy answers to this. Rather, my goal is to present a series, you know, a range of evidence um, that is informed and ask readers to think about this. I can certainly say, and, and the book very much builds on an extraordinary range of historical scholarship that has evolved over, say, the last 10 or 15 years in particular, that it's very difficult any longer to say, oh, this is a one-off here or one-off there, right? And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm seeking to demonstrate with the book. And if we accept this as being more or less historical fact, then the question that, that we should be, or the questions that we should be asking ourselves is, how and why is this happening? Right? What's the legacy? How do we understand those protesting in the 1950s? And how do we think about the ways in which liberal imperialism, in different ways, still continue to play out today? And actually, thinking about the present day, it's, it's interesting that certainly here in Britain, there are still a large number of people, possibly even a majority of the population, who view the British Empire far more favourably and certainly, I suppose, might take issue with some, with some of the arguments in your book. Why do you think that this slightly rosier view of the British Empire still persists in Britain? I think it's we have to step back and ask ourselves the question, the ways in which history had been written for many, many, many decades, right? And I just gestured to, and I really underscore the shift, at least in, in the historical profession, um, and, and certainly in those doing it, if you will, as kind of crossover books, right, who, who write for academia as well as for the public. Some incredible work uh, on case studies of, of violence in the empire. 
And one of the things that Legacy of Violence is doing is sort of getting its arms around all of this in, into a, and putting it into a coherent narrative. And at the same time, historical revisionism is in a bit of an uphill battle, right? I mean, if you have decades, centuries of the entwining of nation, empire, and the monarchy, and this was done quite deliberately by Disraeli in the 19th century of, if you will, fashioning a, at the time of Queen Victoria, a, a British national identity that entwined those three elements. And even to this day, right, the Queen is, is head of various parts of the Commonwealth. You know, I could go on and on, and listeners are, are, are certainly aware of, of that. And, you know, so I think in that sense, yes, you, there, there will be those who may read this and say, you know, this is uh, hyperbolizing. This is, you know, I've done my best. There's about 100 pages of footnotes, 50 pages of bibliography. Um, but I would also ask listeners and readers to bear something else in mind, which is there are deliberate efforts at the very highest levels, not just within the British government, but within the Oxbridge Academy for a very long period of time to cover this up and to write laudatory narratives about empire. The book demonstrates that, how that was happening during the Second World War, and certainly demonstrates, as have others, the ways in which documents were concealed and burned on massive scales. And so I think in that sense, you know, there's a lot of, 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 of debate right now about the impact of, of removing statues, you know, how that erases history. And, you know, look, that's, that's happened for a <laughs> very long period of time, the removal of statues, when we have turns of events, new episodes, new ways of thinking about the present. Burning documents, concealing documents, now that distorts history. And the question the book raises this, is, and that is, how much has the British public known? And so I encourage in that sense, whether it's my book or, or others um, that are out there, to really spend time thinking about the ways in which the historical record has been manipulated and the ways in which historians, I think, are doing some incredibly important work um, in, in sort of, you know, piecing fragments back together again so that the public understands how we in the present arrived here and the ways in which the past is informing that. Have any of these concealed documents since come to light and helped inform your work and that of others? Yes, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I had a, uh, uh, my first book was on Kenya and detention camps, uh, something in, in Britain called Britain's Gulag in the U.S. It's known as, in, the book is the same book, known as Imperial Reckoning. So that book uh, came out in about 2005, 2006. And then in 2009 became the basis for the first time the British government has ever been sued by a former colonized population. And I um, joined as expert witness and then was joined uh, subsequently a year or two later by two other fantastic Kenyan historians. And the case lasted between 2009 and 20, uh, 2013, so about four years. And the British government um, fought the case not on, if you will, the historical merits, but rather on two legal technicalities. Um, so there are two strikeout hearings, one about whether or not it was the right venue in, in Britain, whether or not this case should be in, in Kenya, and the second one was on statute of limitations. And the reason I'm providing these uh, details to, to you and the listeners is because just before the first strikeout hearing, the British government made uh, an enormous uh, sort of discovery, and I kind of use 
those in quotes as well, um, coming to the court and explaining that after, you know, well over a year plus of, of demands from the claimant's attorneys for document discovery, which comes with any court case, they had discovered 300 boxes of previously undisclosed files at Hanslope Park, which is where uh, all the MI5 and MI6 files are contained. It's also known, you know, sort of locally as Spook Central. Um, and that, oh, by the way, next to those 300 boxes were 8,000 other files from 36 other colonies um, that on all these files had been packed up from the different colonies, spirited away, and then concealed for decades until this court case came along. And so the relevance of these files was, was twofold. The most immediate, which was the case at hand, that is the Mau Mau uh, case in the High Court of London. Um, and those documents become very important because they provide us with more, if you will, written evidentiary evidence of wrongdoing, torture, systematic violence, and the like in Kenya. Um, and ultimately, that case did settle in 2013. There was a 20 million pounds drilling uh, payout um, to the victims and uh, an official apology given by Foreign Secretary Haig um, on the on the floor of Parliament. But the value and significance of those files obviously extended well beyond the case itself. And so not just for the Kenyan files, but for those that were discovered for the 36 other colonies have become important to my own work. Um, and what I found interesting and something that I discuss in the book, and that is we had the power of the court behind us in the, in the Kenyan files that were discovered, right? These 300 boxes. And what happened was was as expert witness, I had access to the files because they were scanned and uploaded into a searchable database. But the British uh, government, uh, defended by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, could could call these files based on two aspects. One, um, sensitivity, if any were, you know, uh, potentially exposed, if you will, state secrets. And the other was relevance. And so ensued sort of this this back and forth between myself and the, the team of, of, of students I had helping me with this, uh, the claimant's attorneys, um, and the FCO, because, um, you know, they, they, they didn't want to release all the files, right? Long story short. So as sometimes uh, the analogy used, it's like getting, you know, page 157 of a book and then getting page five, and then getting page six. We're getting all these in, in piecemeal ways. And there were many, many requests, not just from myself, but from the two other historians, of of, of um, compelling the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to release more of the documents. But those requests um, were went away when the settlement was reached. So that's one. Two, that which is in the now uh, in in the uh, public record um, office or now known as the, the National Archives out at Kew from the 36 other colonies, uh, these did not have the power of the court behind them. And so that which remains there largely um, are sort of about banal sort of day-to-day administrative things. And one has to suspend a little bit of of disbelief in thinking that um, they've been hidden all these years in Spook Central and there was really nothing in them. Um, you know, there's a few interesting bits in and not to say they're irrelevant by any stretch. There's some important things in there and there's some important things that one can sort of um, use to, 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 to integrate into to other evidence. But I guess where I'm saying it's a very long answer to your short question, but what I'm saying is that a few things. One, yes, those many of these, but I suspect not all of the concealed documents have been released. 
those that were released, um, there are differences between those that were released that had the power of the court behind them and those that did not. And to this day, there remain hundreds of thousands of other files. First, uh, and especially there's, there's a work of a journalist named Ian Cobain, as well as some others who have identified um, massive amounts of documents held in the Ministry of Defense and elsewhere that are not being released and in violation of the, of the uh, Freedom of Information Act. Okay. One thing I was, I was going to ask you about was before you mentioned that, um, that violence was endemic throughout the British Empire, but were there any colonies that didn't fit this model? Were there any colonies where the colonized populations were treated in a better way? I think it's important to remember and, and something that I point out in the book, and that is violence was not being deployed at all times in all places, always, Right that there were interstices in which people operated locally. Um, and at the same time, what's very important to, to underscore is that violence or the threat of violence was always there, right? And so therefore, when I make the point about, um, you know, all empires being violent, you're imposing your rule on someone else, sort of in layman's terms, right? And how do you do that? Now, typically when we think about the relationship between a citizen and the state, there's something that goes back, way back to sort of ideas of liberalism and, and folks like Locke and the rest of it, right? Social contract, you give up a certain amount of your rights in return for something else. And this is done more or less voluntarily, but the state always holds the monopoly on the use of violence. In empire, this is thrown into relief because those who have engaged, if you will, in the social contract have done so involuntarily. There's not a, it's been imposed upon them. And so I think it's important to to remember that all empires are violent. The the threat of violence is always there. Does it happen every day in every place and every second? No. Um, And the question becomes, what I'm quite interested in is looking at when violence erupts right? And when violence erupts and when it's state-directed violence. So what I'm not looking at, not to say it's unimportant, what I'm not examining is, you know, sort of, if you will, and again, I use quotes on here, sort of casual violence deployed in by settlers on plantations or, or something. I'm interested in when the state is, is involved. Um, and then thinking about those systems, right, the legal systems and the intersection between the law and violence and colonial lived experiences and how that plays out over time. So we talked earlier about the civilizing mission and about things like the white man's burden. But another major aspect of um, British imperialism, I suppose, was Christianity and there were a lot of missionaries being sent out alongside the soldiers. But didn't didn't that kind of Christian mission conflict with the violence that was being meted out on people or was there a way to make accommodation with that? The missionaries um, play an important role in in the story that I'm telling at various points, and I'll, I'll, I'll raise two of them, um, one of which is in Palestine during the Arab Revolt in the, in the late 1930s, and the second of which is in Kenya in the 1950s. And in Palestine, and one of the reasons why I, I, I'm giving you these two examples is because those are the places in particular where there's a, a wealth of records um, remaining, and they're coming from the missionaries themselves, right? So if one just went to the public right or into the National Archives looking for missionaries in these places, you'd come up with them a little bit here and there. Um, but you, so you're looking at these private archives, and in the case of Palestine, there are deputations coming from um, high up in the Anglican Church in in Palestine. Um, 
to the governor, to the high commissioner and the chief secretary, detailing the excruciating acts of violence being perpetrated against uh, members of the Arab population. And there are others that are, if you will, somewhat more colorful, describing even Montgomery and his zeal and zest for deploying violence against the Arab population. And what becomes clear from the historical record is that one of the things that the missionaries are wrestling with is the degree that um, they are there and present in Palestine and elsewhere in the empire at the discretion of the high commissioner or the governor, right? And so there's only so far that they can push it. And there's one interesting quote in the Palestine case where the, um, I believe it was the the um, the head of the Anglican Church there, who finally resolves himself to saying, I'm going to be worried about sort of basically the next worldly lives of these individuals. In other words, um, you know, grace is going to come in the next life, and I have to have acceptance for this one, um, which I found quite poignant, actually. Um, and I think the thing that struck me as well in the Palestine instance, and, and I'll give you a couple of examples from Kenya, is the degree to which members of the church were um, deeply distressed by what was going on, their relative powerlessness, their, their, the degree to which in the late 30s they were not interested in going public in any kind of way, but yet there were others who did. There was a, uh, a welfare officer in, in Palestine at the time who was a cause celeb and, and, and published many of these accounts, right? Lands on the floor of parliament, um, becomes a topic, a big topic of the discussion in the Permanent Mandates Commission for the League of Nations. So all this is out there. And it gets back in some ways, Rob, to your question about um, readers and listeners, right? That what's so stunning is the degree to which when you line up all this evidence, how much people, even with the concealment that was going on, how much people knew, right? It's very, very hard to explain this as a bunch of sort of one-offs and bad apples. And then if we move forward to Kenya, similar kinds of experiences that I just described. And at the same time, by the 1950s, there are several um, within the, the missionary society who become quite outspoken. And there's a, a publications, for instance, Kenya, A Time for Action, and others, which provide not just ample evidence for historians like myself, but also huge amounts of evidence connecting the dots for readers to see the degree to which missionaries were aware of this and were trying to do something about it. And my last point is that there are indications, particularly in the Kenyan case, that there were some missionaries who felt otherwise, who felt as though, you know, uh, the execution and use of violence was um, part of the civilizing mission. And that too complicates the narrative. So I don't want readers to come away or listeners to come away with sort of a good guy, bad guy kind of di dichotomy. And, and I would just urge those in general, whether it's this book or thinking about empire in general, to, to try to step away from that. Was it a force of good? Was it a force of evil? You know, was somebody a good guy or bad guy? Oftentimes there's a combination of both <laughs> of these, um, which makes it both more complicated and also I think in some ways more interesting and realistic when we think about just human experiences in general. Now, a lot of the examples you've talked about took place fairly close to these colonies' independence. For example, what was going on with the Mau Mau in Kenya and in Malaya. So 
did the British Empire actually become more violent as it reached its conclusion? Yes, I think the I think what's important. Let's um let's step back for a second because in some ways this book was supposed to be, um, you know maybe a chapter or so on sort of pre World War Two, and it's supposed to be a book all about post World War Two. The book is at least about a half pre World War Two. <laughs> Right, long before independence, you know the first real independence is coming in in um, as you know in India in 1947, and so what it's doing is it's demonstrating that this isn't sort of episodic or correlative. Uh, you know, we can make a correlation with sort of end of empire and a violent demise. That violence was 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 the handmaiden. Uh, of empire, right? It was the midwife of empire. It, 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 and it was there throughout this, you know, its entire existence. So if we step back, India would be a great example, right? We think about independence in 1947. You know, the mutiny takes place in 1857. Amritsar in 1919. The level of sort of systematized violence that's being carried out and the ways in which um, these are explained and reworked into a, a notion about a civilizing mission. If we look at the Palestinian mandate, right, um, which the British take on after World War I, taking it over from the, the Ottoman Empire, and of course the mandate, you know, was parsed out from the Ottoman Empire, um, the mandate being part of the League of Nations. But the Arab Revolt was from 1936 to 1939, and again, it's another, you know, nearly decade um, before uh, Palestine is, you know, if you will, seizes independence. It, it, you know, ultimately the British try to hand it over to the UN, and and um, then the, the war breaks out there, and and has been continuing in certain different ways um, ever since. And so, I think in that sense, it's important for folks to be thinking about this thread that goes through, and how extraordinarily violent, and the ways in which we can, you know, connect 1954 Kenya. To 19, you know, 44 or so India to, you see what I'm saying, over this long trajectory. And we do so not just as historians because we're kind of lining things up, but we can do so by tracing the movement of people <laughs> and ideas through the empire. So we have folks who are executing various policies in Palestine in the 1930s or India even earlier, and suddenly they're going to pop up for the reader later on in Kenya in 1954, right? And so it's a combination of ideology, it's a combination of movement of people, a combination of transference of ideas and individuals and tactics. And in that sense, as I mentioned before in our conversation, it it reminds us of a kind of spider's web of connectivity. And it's that stepping back that where we can take it in in its totality. What, if anything, do you think the British government could or should do now to recognise or seek to make amends for this violence that was carried out in its name? It's a question that I think many, many, many people are grappling with today, right? And, and I'm, I'm not going to profess myself to be a politician or a public relations expert. I'm an historian. And in that sense, I think a very close examination of the history curricula is, 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 is start number one and revising that in a way that, um, you know, reflects lived experiences of empire that takes young people away from hagiographies of empire 
And in some ways, when you think about the passing on of tradition, if, you know, recently polled, as you pointed out, about 60% of Britons believe empire is something to be proud of. Many of those school teachers, some were, you know, raised on the books of Seeley, were literally fed, um, you know, if you will, propaganda during war, post-war of the, the values of the British empire while covering up its its crimes. They were then taught by, you know, so genealogically, you know, teachers pass on, parents pass on. I was had a very interesting conversation the other day with a friend of mine who I respect greatly, and and she's uh, also a writer, and and she was saying, you know, she'd read the book and and um, said, you know, I I think about my own daughter that I haven't shared with her the fact that many people in our family lived and worked and out in empire, were part of the colonial administration. Um, why? And she sort of asked rhetorically, why haven't I done that? And I think that's the other thing for, for listeners to be thinking about. What, what's your own genealogical past? And it's not to say to sort of bring out the, the skeletons of the family closet, but rather to, to have these conversations. And I, I should emphasize, too, that out in empire, when I was working on my book in Kenya, I was stunned by the degree to which Many of those survivors of the camps and emergency villages with whom I spoke and interviewed, their children and grandchildren never knew they'd been detained. They were so ashamed. They just didn't know how to have this conversation. And I think in that sense, um, learning starts at home. Learning starts at school. And then there are bigger debates to be had about statues and the rest. And I think those are important ones. The mayor of London has been having those in particular. And, and I think in that sense, um, you know, I, I go back to my point about, you know, toppling Colton into the River Avon is not erasing history. Um, burning documents and not offering young people and, 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 old, you know, and those sort of, I call myself, consider myself old-ish or those who are of the older generation, um, facts and evidence for them to be rethinking um, their own nation's past. That was Caroline Elkins. Legacy of Violence, A History of the British Empire is out now, published by Bodley Head. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 